so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Bonnie Christian, an author and a journalist, to talk about our modern knowledge crisis and the rise of misinformation. Bonnie Christian is a seasoned journalist and a columnist at Christianity Today. She previously served as the deputy editor and acting editor-in-chief of The Week. She's the author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting the Christian Community, as well as A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. Her writing has also appeared in Time Magazine, CNN, USA Today, Newsweek, The Los Angeles Times, and The American Conservative, among numerous other outlets. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I want to see if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your journey into journalism, and specifically what prompted you to write a book like this. Sure, yeah, and thanks so much for having me. So I knew, I would say, by high school that I wanted to get into journalism. I was a very big uh, Newsweek reader in in high school and then got a hold of World Magazine and was uh, a big fan of that for a while. Um, so I was on the path quite early. And then when I, I majored in political science in, in college, because I knew that I, I wanted to write about you know politics and current affairs. And when I graduated, I, I worked, spent several years working at some political nonprofits in the, the Washington, D.C. area in communications. And I realized that if I wanted to write more about ideas and less about logistics, like come to our event, that I would probably need an advanced degree, particularly to be doing like opinion writing, which is what I tend to do. I'm not a reporter out pounding the pavement most of the time. And so that was when I decided to go to seminary. And so we went out to Minnesota for me to attend Bethel Seminary out there. Uh, and then while I was in seminary, I started doing more freelance journalism, gradually building up you know, different portfolios and clients. Um, For a long time, my home base was The Week. Uh, And then I left there this past summer. And these days, I would say my my primary affiliation is I have a column at Christianity Today. And I write a bunch of other places as well. And so this book, Untrustworthy, really came out of that work as a journalist over the past few years in particular, I would say from maybe 
2017, 2018 onward, I found that I was writing a lot about topics related to this book. Not, you know, misinformation is part of it, but it's really much more about like us as consumers of knowledge um, and how we're encountering information in our very hectic, very frantic information environment. Um, and so I, you know, I was coming back to these same topics over and over again, and it, it sort of reached a tipping point where I thought, you know, maybe I should write about this in a, a different format than an article that people will read for three days and then forget about. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate about you is just the depth and the ways you address a lot of these complex issues. And that's why I was really thrilled to see you write this book specifically, um, because I do think it's such an important topic. I know, you know, we've talked a good bit about it. I've written a good bit about uh, misinformation and kind of our, our culture of knowledge and how we pursue knowledge and how technologies forming and shaping us. And so that was really exciting that you had this book coming out um, on the heels of, well, I guess right before we have a volume coming out called The Digital Public Square, um, which we'll obviously talk about a little bit later this year. It comes out in February where you have a really insightful chapter on how we combat online pornography and how we think through some of those issues. So uh, we'll save that to another time. Um, but specifically with this book, I like the way you open the book. Uh, you open the book with a pr really provocative statement, I think, for most people when they think of misinformation, conspiracy theories, etc. You say, American society has a knowledge crisis, and the American church is no exception. I think often in kind of our more polarized age, it's always us versus them. So when we talk about issues like misinformation, conspiracy theories, fake news, or the general knowledge crisis and kind of reality crisis around us, there's always those people over there. But you rightfully understand that this is not just something out there. It's actually something that's a culture that we all inhabit. It's something that's shaping and forming us all together. So I wanted to see if you could talk to us a little bit about the nature of this crisis and how is it re it isn't relegated just to people out there, but actually our own families, our churches, and our local communities. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of a that that general sense of unease that I think a lot of us have encountered when we're you know scrolling through Twitter, or looking at things on Facebook. It's uh, recently my husband said that he saw a relative of ours watching something on his phone, and the relative said, "I don't know if this is real or not." Um, it's that it's that difficulty of knowing you know what is what is knowable, like and what is true, and who is trustworthy. What voices should we be? you know, spending our time with and, and who should we be ignoring, um, it, particularly when we have so many competing voices and, and often um, even among our own congregations or, or our own families, our own friend groups, where people are listening to these competing voices and they're all saying, you know, the other one is lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. Um, you know, they're making claims that nobody could prove, whereas I'm going to, you know, give you the real facts over here. It's just this constant onslaught of information coming our way and truth claims coming our way. And I think that, you know, this is all accelerated really quickly. It feels at this point like we've had the internet around forever, particularly for those of us like me, where, you know, I, the whole, almost the entirety of my job is on the internet. I use Microsoft Word and I use the internet. Those are the two tools of my trade. And so it's, it's very all encompassing, but it is so new. And even within my lifetime, um, even within, you know, like a, a time when I was old enough to be researching things, you know, for papers in high school and college, we didn't live this way. We didn't encounter this much information. And I just think we're not equipped to handle it. And as Christians, we might like to think, well, you know, we're people of the truth. We're an exception to that. But I think that we need to have specific 
habits and, and practices, and I'm giving away the end of the book here, but I, I think that we, we need to be more specifically equipped for this, that we can't just say like, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to dive into the internet and blast information in my face all day and it'll be fine. I think one of the ways that we see that is often when we talk about technology is, is it good or bad? And then we kind of count, we want it, is it all good basically maybe with some bad apples or is it basically bad with just maybe some good redeeming uses, minor uses kind of thing? And I think that's the wrong question to ask. But then we often are then also asked, well, is it neutral? It's somehow just a tool we use. These are just apps that we use. It's all about our personal responsibility. And it's like, yes, that's true also, but it's not neutral because it is forming us and shaping us. And I, I write about it as how it's forming our view of God. It's forming our view of ourselves. And it's forming the way we view the world around us, including our neighbors. And I think you rightfully point out that this isn't just an issue over there. It's actually something that we all, it's a culture in which we all inhabit. As I address a lot of these questions, I try to be pretty honest um, about even myself being duped by fake news and conspiracy theories. And I write about, I hope in my book, I write a story about I was sitting at the, I was actually washing the dishes. My wife was feeding our kids and I was scrolling through Twitter on my phone. And as I was scrolling, I came across this really crazy story a couple of years ago. And it kind of confirmed a lot of the things that I just kind of assume about culture. And I assume, so I just immediately like bit into it and it looked like it was a semi-reputable news source or what have you. And I immediately told my wife and she's like, oh, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened. And well, you know, how crazy is people getting duped by this or whatever? And so we talked about it for a minute. Well, she was on the phone with her parents. So she immediately shares that information with her parents. And then about, I don't know, 45 seconds to a minute later, I realized this is fake news. Like, this is literally not true. What I just read, what I just shared with my wife, who she shared with her her parents was fake news. It was kind of confirmed all my priors. I should have been a little bit better equipped to think about some of those things. But as you said, is again, I was a propagator of fake news and conspiracy theories unwittingly. And it, it's something that affects all of us. In the book, you write about kind of the nature of epistemology. I think for some, they may not be familiar with that language, but you write about the nature of epistemology and kind of the epistemic crisis that we're facing right now. So for listeners who may not be familiar with that language or some of those concepts, can you give us a quick overview of what you mean by those terms and then how that kind of helps us shape the way that we address the knowledge crisis that we're facing today? Sure. So epistemology is a, a branch of philosophy. And it's basically the study of knowledge. It's, it's thinking about what do we mean when we say knowledge? How is, how is knowledge different from opinion? How do we acquire knowledge? What does it mean to say something is true or something is proven or something is a fact? These kinds of questions, which are obviously all super relevant right now. I think that, you know, I, originally I wanted to put uh, epistemic crisis, I think, in the, in the headline somewhere. Um, right now it's knowledge crisis. Uh, and that's because people aren't familiar, you know, with epistemology and understandably so. The problem is that, you know, I think there are a lot of times and places where you don't have to know what epistemology means to like live a good life and and follow Jesus faithfully and all that sort of thing. I don't think we're in one of those times and places. I think that just the the fact that we're in this very intense period of technological transition. And, you know, if you look at the history of when like the printing press came out and, and books started coming out, like that was a, that was a pretty wild time too. That did not happen smoothly. 
and what what's happening to us given much higher rates of literacy and and speed of like adoption of this new technology it's it's happening in a much more compressed scale involving many more people um so given that we're in this very intense transitional time with technology and given just the sheer amount of of information we encounter every day i think we do need to think about these questions these epistemological questions in a more you know intentional direct way than maybe we otherwise would and so a big part of what i'm hoping to do with this book is introduce people to the idea of not only trying to gain knowledge but thinking about how they gain knowledge and what kind of person they are as they're trying to gain knowledge and you know looking at their own motives um you know you mentioned like that that article that confirmed all your priors like why do you want to believe this thing that you've encountered um and that's a question that it's it's hard to ask and it's especially hard to ask when you are just you know you're scrolling through a thousand things in a day it's it's very difficult to scroll through those things in a thoughtful manner let alone in a way that interrogates you know your own approach to the situation it reminds me of a, a quote from Alan Jacobs in his um, How to Think and then his later book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, uh, where he talks about kind of the information overload. So we have a knowledge crisis and not understanding or totally being able to trust maybe what we see, um, especially in our senses and what we what we see in news, et cetera. But it also is this kind of overload of information. It's just we're not made to process this much information. And there are a lot of benefits to this. So I don't want to be – one of the things that I always get critiqued on is they people will say you're either too positive about technology or you're too negative. And I'm like, it's actually both. Like in that sense of there's a lot of good that comes from these tools. And I think even just the ability to have a podcast like this or to be able to engage with your writing, like we've actually never met in person, even though we've interacted a lot. And we were able to do that through technology. So there are a lot of benefits to technology. There are a lot of these dangers as well. And it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of kind of the information that we we have more access to information, but in the same respect, we're overloaded with information. Jacobs talks about it in terms of, he says, battlefield triage, where we just kind of run over here for a second. We try to take care of something. We move on to the next thing. We move on to the next thing. And there's not a lot of sustained attention. Uh, there's not a lot of sustained thought and thoughtfulness as we engage a lot of these things. And so I think maybe for listeners, when they hear terms like conspiracy theories or misinformation and disinformation, these seem, they're, and they don't even seem, they are very politically, there's a lot of political baggage that often comes with these. And I think you rightfully point out that this isn't just an issue on the political right or the political left. It's actually kind of a larger cultural issue that we're facing. Can you speak to a little bit about the rise of misinformation, why this isn't a particular, while it is a political issue. It's not just a political issue. It's actually something much broader than that. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you say, the even the word misinformation is very politically tinged. And I, I think I barely use it in the book. But for that reason, right? Because I think there's a, a lot of people, especially people on the right, who where they hear you start to talk about misinformation, you know, it, it just immediately turns off, right? Like that's like a, you know, a democratic talking point. You're trying to censor us, this sort of thing. And I understand where they're coming from because it has been used in some really cynical ways. But I, I also think at the same time that, you know, the, the, one of the Internet's big effects with, and, and this isn't just the Internet, you know, it's also other, other forms of media as well. I would include television and, and radio and other forms of audio in this. One of the big effects of 
the way technology has changed in the last 20, 30 years is that it's democratized things. And in a lot of ways, that's a, a really good thing. I mean, I owe my whole career to the internet. Um, 30 years ago, I would not be able to write for the outlets that I write for. I would not be able to do the research that I do, particularly from a distance. You know, I don't live in New York City. I wouldn't be able to work with these people if it weren't for the internet. But that also means that, you know, that we don't have just the big three news channels anymore. We have so many voices. You know, those are not all high quality voices. It's a lot easier not to say that that the big three news channels were all getting everything right. They they weren't. But there's only three. You can you can keep tabs on that. You can't keep tabs on on everything that exists now, all the different sources. Um, and so you have wide variations in quality. You have people who um, you know are well intended, but just you know they accidentally spread misinformation because it it fits with their worldview. You have people who are actively malicious, who are who really are just out there lying about things frequently so that they can sell you some supplements. Um, you know, there's just like a, a huge range of information out there. And so on the one hand, I understand the impulse to celebrate like the way this democratization has happened and the way that we can now hear from more people. The problem is that as we're turning away from some of these big, more traditional media outlets as our main sources of information, the places that we're turning are not necessarily better. And in some cases, as much as you, there's good grounds for critiquing, like the old standbys, we're turning to places that are worse. Uh, and this stuff spread, can spread so quickly. There have been studies that have done that show that misinformation, and again, I understand the distaste that we're going to bring up for some folks, but that misinformation will spread faster than true stories on places like Twitter and Facebook. And it's easy to understand why this happens, because if you're not constrained by reality, you're not constrained by the truth, you can write whatever you want. You can write things that deliberately outrage people. Of course, that spreads faster. That's way more exciting. Yeah, and that's one of the things that often that we we fail to address, I think, sometimes from a Christian perspective, is that a lot of these platforms are intentionally designed for us to share random bits of information. And it's interesting to see, and we could, this is a whole other conversation, but it's really interesting to see some of the platforms starting to introduce some friction in terms of when you go to retweet something, have you, do you want to read it first? Because they know, but like that little bit of friction, while it doesn't solve the problem, it's not going to keep fake news from going out or it's not going to make sure you read the article. What it does is adds a little friction. And sometimes for maybe some people, it's actually going to slow them down saying, maybe I should read this. I think that's one of the ways that technology is subtly and kind of radically altering us is it's forming us into the type of people who have to become very reactionary almost immediately, um, whether it's to share an unformed thought, to retweet something that confirms what we already believe, or to even, as in my case, I was just duped by something while I didn't share it publicly, thank the Lord. And I tried not to share a lot of those type of things anyway, uh, just because of the way that I try to maintain kind of my integrity online in general is to speak to the things that I actually have studied and read and work on. There's an old quote from Karen Swallow Prider, who I know endorsed this book as well. Um, but she talks about uh, social media should be a place that you show your work rather than it being the work. Um, and I really like that because especially it's a place to model where I have written or the things that I have done rather than getting on there and seeing this as some kind of job in that sense. But I think as we kind of dive into some of these questions, we naturally kind of tend to say, oh, yeah, this is kind of a newer problem. 
per se. But I think he wisely showed that there's actually a larger knowledge crisis going on that's not just about technology. So I wanted to kind of press in on that and to say, is technology the main driver of the knowledge crisis? Or maybe is it simply exacerbating something that was already going on prior to the rise of a lot of the modern digital technologies? Is there something larger going on in our culture that technology is kind of exacerbating and pushing forward? Or is maybe to say is technology is kind of a leading question? Or is it really the problem in itself? I think it's some of both. So on the one hand, where technology comes in is it, it really increases the speed is a big part of it. It increases the volume of information and it increases, I think, the number of people who are directly involved in this, right? Because like, you know, 30 years ago, you have an opinion you want to share. You maybe like write a letter to the editor of your local paper and hope they pick it up. And then maybe the fraction of your community that reads the letters to the editor and the fraction that reads the paper are going to see it. Whereas now you put it on Facebook and everyone you know sees it. Um, and so a, a thought experiment that I put in the book that I like to ask people is like, think about how much you share online today. And imagine if you had to do that with analog means 30, 40 years ago, where you're like clipping out stuff out of the newspaper and you're making Xeroxes and you're like recording stuff on a VHS and then you're mailing it out to every like 300, 400 people with like a Polaroid of yourself. Um, to make up for the profile picture. Like people would think you were crazy. Like that's what a nut job does. Um, and we all do that now. Uh, and you know, the ease, you know, it doesn't take all day to do it like it would then, but it's still, I mean, there's something a little weird about that. And I think it's still a little weird now. But in terms of like stepping aside from the technology, I do think that a lot of the seeds of what we're experiencing were there already. Um, I think the words, you know, sort of exacerbated by what we're, experiencing. And some of that I think is just about like human nature, like our, our tendency to to think in terms of us versus them, as you've mentioned, to, to sort of engage in that kind of tribal behavior and mobbish behavior and, you know, find excuses to shame people and, and toss people out of community for, you know, pretty petty reasons just because we didn't like them already. Some of it I think is about probably a general human tendency to think that we're better judges of information and truth claims than we actually are. Uh, some of it, I think, is about maybe particularly American. Um, I would say that, you know, our, our skepticism of authority is a very healthy American political habit, but, you know, it, it does make us tend towards, uh, toward conspiracism, toward, you know, having a, a mindset of suspicion above and beyond, you know, what is appropriate. Uh, and so I think a lot of that stuff was happening already. And all of that, I think, is compounded by loneliness and by, you know, our increasing isolation and, and dissolution of community institutions and friendships. And, and I'm including church membership in that. All of that, I think, is exacerbated by the fact that we just are not spending as much time hanging out with other people in person, uh, which is a, a you know, you can you can only do so much, so much harm <laughs> when you're hanging out with other people, talking, having dinner. Um, you're not reading crazy stuff. You're not posting crazy stuff online when you're doing that. And they're, in many cases, going to be like a, a voice of reason for you and you're a voice of reason for them. And so you moderate each other uh, and we're just, we're doing less of that. 
Yeah, I've noticed something that uh, when I talk to a lot of pastors, it sounds funny to say this, but one of the main questions that I get from pastors in terms of kind of ethics and discipleship and things is about conspiracism and conspiracy theories. And it's interesting because I think on one hand, that can be really overplayed as if there's this widespread conspiracy issue that's kind of infecting the church and you see the stories kind of coming across saying it's all those evangelicals, it's all those Christians over there, like in the widespread conspiracy theories, it's a massive problem. No one's talking about it. On the other hand, it is a very real problem, but I've noticed that a lot of pastors have been maybe at times a little sheepish to talk about it or to ask about it because they're being pressed to say, well, pastor, what do you think about this? Or I read this thing on Facebook And I think it's true. And can you believe this is happening? And what are we going to do about it as a church? And these pastors often feel ill-equipped because one, maybe that's not their area of expertise. They don't have a lot of study in that area. But then the other kind of interesting angle and kind of variable to a lot of these conversations is I've noticed, as we mentioned earlier, that some of this language comes with a lot of baggage. One of the reasons I think people get so uncomfortable and sometimes frustrated when we talk about conspiracy theories and conspiracism um, specifically is that a lot of these things, well, some, I won't say a lot, some of these things end up actually being true. So there's an element of truth or they actually do end up being proved true kind of in the long run, but in the moment, they're labeled as conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, whatever, to kind of dissuade people from it, to kind of look the other way while something else is going on. And so as you rightfully point out, there's this kind of widespread skepticism, and I think that plays into a lot of these things. But I think a lot of what ends up happening with conspiracy theories and fake news is that on one hand, we can take them too seriously. On the other hand, we cannot take them seriously enough. I don't know, it it presents this really interesting phenomenon, I think, for pastors is how do we think through these things in the local church? How do we kind of walk through them? So I wanted to see if you can help us to unpack a little bit more about the nature of conspiracies. Obviously, this isn't a a thing that started in, you know, 2015 or something like that. This is actually something that's much larger. We have conspiracies of JFK and the moon landing and things well before it. But it's kind of the nature of conspiracy theories. And what kind of counsel would you give to pastors, ministry leaders, even parents who are having to navigate some of these questions in their relationships in the community? Yeah, well, so I'd say a few things. One is that, you know, as you say, sometimes sometimes conspiracy theories are true. And I think a big part of, I don't want to make this a a generational thing because people of all generations are affected by all of this stuff. But I think a, a big and perhaps overlooked part of the current sort of, you know, feels like a swell of, of conspiracism um, that we see in Americans generally and in the American church is about, you know, think about like the boomer generation. They came of age in the 1970s. There were a lot of congressional investigations in the 1970s that uncovered a lot of real conspiracy theories. Like that happened. And those were their formative years. Also in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. I mean, whether you think the book is right or wrong, it's conspiratorial. Like it's it's all about hidden plots and plans. Um, And so if those are your formative times, uh, I I can see why you would be, you know, extra disposed to believing some of this stuff. You know, you mentioned things to say to parents. I I would say that the most common version of this conversation that I have is people who are my age talking about their parents buying into conspiracy theories, people who are older adults, frequently retired, not occupied with work all day, watching a lot more cable news, 
with their phone in their hand, like getting just that two-screen experience of uh, frequently conspiracy theories coming their way. So, you know, all that to say, like, I, I understand conspiracies do happen, and particularly if you, you grew up in a time when a lot of real conspiracies were exposed. Like, you know, it's, it's not inherently unreasonable to believe in conspiracy theories because sometimes they're real. What I would challenge more, and we've used this word conspiracism a few times, it's the idea of like a mindset that is at once very skeptical, very cynical about claims, especially from official sources, but also very gullible. And so frequent, and, and, and the way this mindset works is that it will treat innuendo as proof and it, it will treat rumor as if it's research. These are not the same things. And just because someone you like makes an assertion that doesn't count. <laughs> that's not that's not how we acquire knowledge. Um, a claim is not the same as a as a, a factor. It's not the same as truth. And so, I think that mindset is much more concerning to me than any particular conspiracy theory. And I think what happens in practice with people who are fallen into that mindset is they'll say like, "Oh, look at all these conspiracy theories that I believed that turned out to be true." And it's like, "Yeah, but you're forgetting like the other ninety percent plus that you believed that." There's no proof that didn't turn out to be true, but that you, you know, continue to hold on to because of just sort of this default posture towards the world. So I would make that distinction of, of not really, not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily cause for concern if someone believes a specific theory, but are they approaching that the whole world through that, I think, very um, insidious and deceiving posture? As far as pastors, I, I mean, I have no envy for people who are in ministry at any time, but especially right now, I think this is something that probably feels like it should be outside your purview. Like, you know, this probably wasn't covered when you went to seminary and that is not fun. Um, but I, I think that this is something that's going to be in your congregation if it's not there already. And, you know, I understand pastors have limited time. There's only so many things they can be spending their time on. But this is probably something that needs to make the cut right now, just in the, the state of our country, the state of our politics, the state of where people's minds are. Um, I think I mentioned in the book that again and again, as I was researching this book and as I was, um, you know, researching articles prior to writing the book, I would have pastors say to me or I would come across pastors saying like in the wild and in other people's interviews, just on Twitter of their own accord, on Facebook, wherever, something almost verbatim to the effect of like, you know, I get to spend an hour a week with my congregants and uh, CNN or Fox News or Facebook or whatever gets to spend 20 hours with them and I can't compete with that. Um, and I think that that's, you know, even if you don't have congregants coming to you saying, what do you think about this conspiracy theory yet? Um, even if they haven't verbalized it, that's probably going on in the background already. And so it's better to to start preparing now. Yeah, it's one of those things that is our, even as we sit here, I assume it's true on your end. My phone is within a foot of me right now. And it stays with me throughout the day, almost to the place where I get uncomfortable when I don't know where my phone is. I don't know if you've experienced that. Like in our family, I'm like, honey, where did I put my phone? Like, what? where is it? And we just kind of have this like low level anxiety with our phone and without our phone of I'm either missing something, something's going on. And so we're kind of naturally drawn to these devices. Um, and it opens up kind of a host of big questions. And another question that I hear from pastors, and I was even recently asked about this, not too long ago, just a couple of weeks, 
is about the rise of cancel culture. And I know you write a little bit about that in the book. We recently had Jonathan Rausch on the podcast talking um, his book, Constitution of Knowledge, which is a really helpful book. I highly recommend that for listeners, as well as that interview with Jonathan. It was really eye-opening. He calls cancel culture in the book, The Despotism of the Few. And I really like the way he talks about that. But I wanted to see if you can kind of unpack what is cancel culture? Because I think sometimes it's a little amorphous for folks. They don't tot- we understand it inherently, but in the same respect, it's it's hard for us to kind of grasp sometimes. And how ideas of cancel culture also play into kind of the current knowledge crisis that we're facing today. Sure. Yeah. So I would say cancel culture. I, I define it in the book. I, it's a little harder off the top of my head because if you say it is so amorphous, I would say generally it's about an attempt to punish someone for an actual or perceived offense. Often, but not always, the offense is ideological or it's a a breach of like social norms um, and frequently social norms that were pretty recently established such that the person might reasonably defend themselves by saying like, I thought this was okay. And it frequent it does it's not it's not legal consequences typically. Um, we're not talking about crimes. We're not talking about anything that could be prosecuted. And it frequently involves an element of like mobbish behavior online, where you have a large crowd of people on social media typically who have no personal connection to the person or the situation, what they did. They're they're not personally affected in any way. They will suffer no harm if this person has, experiences no consequences. And then frequently it also includes an element of the consequences they're calling for are professional in nature. So, you know, lose your job, um, lose your admission to a university, you know, be kicked off some prestigious board, something like that. I always suggest it's a, it's typically a, it's sort of a, a class issue. Like the people who are getting canceled are, you could say, in like the professional managerial class or better. People are not out typically trying to cancel like a mailman or a plumber. Um, It's typically people who have some sort of like public persona. They work in some middle class or higher profession where they have a career. And if they get fired from their job, as is demanded, not only are they out of that specific role, but they may be unhirable in their field for the rest of their lives. It reminds me of a story I, I once heard of a lady who tweeted something kind of sarcastic and just for warn everybody's uh, sake, don't tweet things or share things online that are sarcastic because it, you may understand it, but often a lot of other people won't, especially devoid of context. And she shared something right as she was getting on a plane, which is like, the scariest thing in the world uh, to tweet something. And she tweeted something sarcastic. I don't remember what it was. And she got off the plane like six or eight hours later. It was a pretty long flight and she had literally been canceled. I mean, it was like massive viral status on this. I can't believe this. People were calling her. I mean, it was just a complete mess. And it always is a warning to me to be very careful about the things you post And also to acknowledge, one of the things I I talk to my students about is cultivating epistemic humility, which is not only an understanding of the limitations of our knowledge, but also the acknowledgement that you're going to grow and change over time. And to be okay with that, while we don't hopefully don't shift on the fundamentals 
especially of the Christian faith over time, there are going to be deepening understandings, nuance, complexity that we're going to gain. And we may actually shift on some things. And I don't think that's inherently a bad thing because it shows that we're growing this kind of process of sanctification. Uh, but that uh, that story about the airplane always gets me because I'm like, oh man, like I, I want to make sure I don't tweet something stupid. Um, and that's why I frequently will just text my friends. Uh, because my friends will just jab me and tell me I was an idiot or whatever about saying something, but at least it didn't go, it didn't have the potential to go viral or something like that. One of the things I want to do, I have a couple questions left and I know we're kind of running out of time, but I want to get to some practical aspects here. And that's something that I really love about your book is you not only describe the problem, but you also start to provide a solution. And it's not a checklist. It's not five steps to write your relationship with technology and solve the knowledge crisis at hand type of thing. And I think a lot of those things are often too trite and simple to be really helpful. But from your training as a journalist, um, as a researcher, as a writer, what are some practical tips or encouragement that you might give folks when they are being inundated with information about not just check the sources, because I think we hear that often, we don't really know what that means or how to do that. But what are some of the ways that maybe in your own life or the ways that you would teach others to have a little bit better digital literacy? and kind of information literacy when we're trying to navigate some of these things and determine what's true and false in the midst of the overload. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that I start with in the book when I'm turning to this more practical stuff is like take an inventory of your own behavior and be really honest about like how bad is it? (laughs) Because it's probably worse than you'd like to admit. I know mine usually is. And then when you've done that, I think a lot of the I'm not a Luddite. I don't want you to get off the internet unless, you know, if God tells you to get off the internet, you know, get off the internet. But for most of us, I don't think we have to get off the internet. Um, the internet has a, a lot of good things. But I do think there need to be some pretty real limits about what we're doing with it and particularly around news consumption. So I have more than this in the book, but a few things I'd say off the top of my head is number one, so I, you know, I work in journalism. It's my job to read the news. That is not going to be the case for most people listening to this podcast. Uh, And just as it would be weird for me to be messing around with stuff from your job all the time, it's weird that you're doing stuff with my job all the time. Like you don't, you don't need to listen to the news all the time. You don't need to know everything that happens. Um, When I worked at the week, the week publishes an email each morning called 10 things you need to know. Um, It's 10 items, about a hundred words each that are just sort of like, here's the gist of the big stories that have happened in the last 24 hours. I would say for the vast majority of people, that's about all the news consumption that you need. Now, say you're really interested in politics. You, there are some things you really want to follow. Okay, cool. Limit that list. Like maybe half a dozen, I would say, is what the average person on the high end is going to have time to really follow responsibly. And by that, I mean, you know, pick a, a pretty big story. I'm not talking about like this specific bill that's in the Senate. I'm talking about like, say, the war in Ukraine, like that would be a big enough thing to follow as one of your half dozen and like actually follow it well, like read a a lot about it, read primary sources about it. Um, You know, you mentioned people say like, check the sources. We don't know what that means. Well, you're never going to know what that means for every subject. Like there's a lot of things that you just have to accept you're not going to know about. And that's fine because you can't do anything about them anyway. And your knowing changes nothing in the world. But if you're if you're picking just a select few topics that you're going to know well, you actually, with time, will be able to check the sources and and will have a feel for that topic and like a background knowledge of that topic that when you're reading something, 
you know, maybe a, a report that whether unintentionally or maliciously gets something wrong, you're going to have a warning bell go off and say like, no, no, that doesn't sound right. You'll be able to, to actually be an informed reader, like handling the topic well, not just coming to it and having to, uh, you know, sort of accept or ignore the articles or the, the news sources you're encountering because you, you don't know any better. Who am I to say? Like, if you want to be a responsible news consumer, you should be someone who can say, who can, who has a good sense of what's going on in the topics that you're reading about. Um, and that means, you know, deliberately cutting down what you know about. Um, and that's hard to do because of the way that news is served to us. So where it's like wild and, and television news, I think is especially bad about this. It's just not a serious format for news consumption where it's like, all right, we're talking about the war in Ukraine. And now look at this beautiful kitten that we're bringing into the studio. You, the, you can't, that's not a real way to, to learn about things. It's, it's absurd to, I think, to think that you're going to be responsible if that's the process. So I guess that's my single biggest thing is just like, you probably don't need to consume as much news. You don't have to check so many sources if you're consuming less news. And if you are going to consume it, pick a few topics do really well with them, ignore the rest because you can't help there anyway. Yeah, I think that is part of that kind of epistemic humility is kind of knowing your own limits and knowing your own things. Like I study ethics and philosophy and I like politics and some cultural things, but there are some issues or some ideas or some topics that I like I'm interested in and I might read a little bit about, but I'm by no means an expert in. And I also try not to speak on those issues because I just simply don't know what I don't know. But I, I really love the way you talk about one of the practical habits and something I've tried to kind of cultivate in my own life. And I've written about this a little bit for ERLC before, is I rarely get my news per se. Now, granted, I, I'm exposed to news. Let's say that. It doesn't matter if you're on social media, you're going to see it. But I get most of my main news consumption from some newsletters. And they're from not only some trusted sources, but they're also kind of those recaps, whether it was the thing you were talking about the week, one of them that I love, and I think it might may have changed its name. I think it's it used to be the Economist Espresso, and I think they changed it to something else. But it's like a quick hit of like, here's some international news you should know. And then I have one with the dispatch. So here's the top stories you should know from kind of the Americas in general. And while that's not perfect, and yes, those those outlets have their own ideologies and things like that, I'm exposed to it so much that I kind of I know those things. But then also, it kind of keeps me a little bit more narrowly focused, so I'm not always kind of here and there and over here and seeing this. And there's not a, there's a lot of news sources I just simply don't follow. Um, and turning off like notifications, half the breaking news notifications we see are just utter garbage. They're not even news, much less something that we actually need to know. On a slightly more positive note, I think the the proliferation of newsletters like that is a positive sign that that people are recognizing what we have is not good. Now, whether whether people will read the newsletters they signed up for and whether they will only read the newsletters they signed up for and not just make them an addition to everything else they're already doing is another question. But the fact that, you know, when, when we started doing that at the week, it was an unusual product. And now that sort of thing is everywhere. And the fact that there's so much demand for it, I do think is a, a hopeful sign that people are, are realizing they need to change something about how they're living in this world. 
Well, obviously, there's so much here that we can talk about, even things that I wanted to get to that we didn't have time to get to. And so I highly recommend folks to go check out your book, Untrustworthy. It's a really, really helpful book. Um, It's out now. Encourage listeners to go grab that. We'll link to that in the show notes. But we always end on the same question, and I think you're kind of a wealth of knowledge in this area, so I'd love to pick your brain. What are some big, major resources or really helpful resources that either you utilize a lot in the book that you think would be helpful for listeners to dig in on their own or some other ideas, some other resources that if folks want to dig a little bit deeper on some of these topics, what would you recommend? Sure. Um, Well, if I were on another podcast, I might recommend your new book, but I assume your (laughs) listeners are already aware of that. You mentioned Jonathan Rauch. I would actually recommend, so I would say if you're if you're interested in getting into like a little bit more of the academic side of things, I would actually recommend his first book, Kindly, I don't know if it's his very first book, but Kindly Inquisitors, which is, it has a lot in common with The Constitution of Knowledge, which is his more recent one. But it was originally published back in 1993. The reason why I would say I prefer it of the two is a couple reasons. One is it's shorter, which is nice. Two is... Because it's published in 1993, it feels just like weirdly prescient, like especially on cancel culture type stuff. He's writing, uh, you know, two decades, three decades before most of us ever thought about any of this stuff. And it's so spot on. And also because it's so old, he's using examples that are not current hot button issues. And I think that can be really helpful for thinking about these things without like sort of the things that we're worked up about right now. Um, It just helps you to take a step back and and look at it a little bit more dispassionately in a way that I think is really productive. So I would say that for if you want to get into more like the academic side of epistemology, not that it's a difficult read. He's a, he's a very clear writer and it, it doesn't come off as like a textbook. On the more practical end of things, I would recommend a book with which I'm guessing many of your listeners will already be familiar, but The Common Rule by Justin Whitmill Early. And that's something that I reference uh, repeatedly, I think, in in my book, and it's something that's been very useful to me, and I'm actually about to read his second book, which is a follow-up where he he takes, a, I think, a lot of the, the principles and ideas from the first book, but adapts it more toward family life um, and like doing this stuff with kids, as opposed to the, the first book is very much like what you as an individual can do. Um, and the subtitle is uh, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, I believe. And it's it's a lot of really, really practical stuff about like one thing that I've really tried to stick with from his book is uh, scripture before phone. Like basically just the idea that when you get up in the morning, the first thing you look at should not be your phone. Um, And that was the first thing I looked at for a long time. Um, And it's, you know, I don't do it perfectly. Um, Sometimes I'll answer a text, but like, especially before I really get into like email or social media or news site, really try to, to not let that be the first thing of the day. So yeah, those are, those are two books that I would point to. No, those are really helpful. And uh, we'll make sure for listeners' sake, not only to link to those resources, but also that conversation that we had with uh, Jonathan Roush. It was a really enlightening conversation. And it was funny because there's a lot of things that we don't agree on um, at all. But having having him as kind of a dialogue partner, I, I heard from a number of listeners after the fact, they said, man, that was just really helpful to see like honest 
open, charitable dialogue about some really, really important issues. Um, and it was one of the more kind of enjoyable conversations I've had here on the podcast as well. Um, but we'll make sure to link to your new book as well, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis That's Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting the Christian Community. Uh, that's out now. We'll make sure to link to that so listeners can grab a copy. And as we talked about right at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we have a volume that's coming out next February, February of 23, called The Digital Public Square Christian Ethics in a Technological Society. Highly recommend listeners to go check that out. It's available for pre-order wherever you buy books. Um, and Bonnie wrote a really, really insightful chapter on how we navigate a lot of the challenges of pornography in terms of, especially with content moderation, uh, really, really enlightening essay there. I encourage listeners to check that out. Hopefully, Bonnie will have you back on closer to that release, and we can talk a little bit about your chapter um, in that book. But I really appreciate your work. Um, I appreciated getting to know you over the last few years, and it was really fun having you here on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Bonnie and learn more about her new book, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.